0: I love cell phones. You know why? Every time I go to a meeting, it looks like it's a prayer meeting. Everybody gets their heads down, their hands together.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay, so everybody, uh, I'd like to introduce you to Richard Lanius. Uh, you might know him for the games he's designed, such as Arkham Horror and the expansions, as well as Elder, Signs, Elder Sign. Um, can you tell us about some of your... First of all, tell us about uh, the games that you've designed, kind of the thought processes that went behind them. Sure. And then uh, we'll have an introduction to the
0: audience. Well, first of all, thank you for coming. Hope everybody's having a good time. Uh, Hope I make this worth your while, because there's lots of stuff to do out there. Uh, I've been doing game design for a long, long time. I started actually back in the uh, very early 80s, doing role-playing at that time. I wrote uh, a couple of different role-playing stories for Call of Cthulhu, uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and then, I was talking earlier, then we had kids, and uh, once we had children I found that I had no more time to do all the role playing that I like to do and, and really invest in it because it's a, it's a, you know, if you, if you role play you know it's, it's wonderful to build that world and, and get together with your friends, but it's very time consuming also. Um, I was in a situation where my wife was working nights I was working days so in the evening I had to figuring out well what am I going to do and that's when I created Arkham Horror I said you know what I'm going to make Call of Cthulhu for myself I don't need a I don't need a keeper anymore I can I can play the game you know with friends or I can play it by myself and I created uh, the original Arkham Horror back in the early 80s uh, all my friends were hey send that off this should be published this is great and i was like you know everything was created on a typewriter back then you know i'd hand drawn all the 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 cards and created all the the stuff and i was like god if i send it off i won't get to play it anymore so i sent it off and it was gone and you know months went by and i never heard anything about it so i I kind of figured it was just gone from existence and finally the finally got a call from greg stafford who was the president of calcium at the time and he said you know, we got to publish your game because it's all our playtesters want to do. That's all they do. They come in, they play, they go home, they come back. And the original Arkham Horror, before it was published, had no end to it. You could just keep playing it. It was kind of like the role-playing game. You scored points or you just kept going. So we, we came up with an ending uh, where you had to close the gates or, or, or there was a doom track and all that type of thing. And so the original was published. So that kind of got me into to board game publishing. But uh, uh, it was still kind of a side business. Uh, I continued to uh, do some uh, actually computer games through the, through the 80s. Uh, Then, as I got uh, uh, later in my career, I was with the Yellow Pages for, well, AT&T and different companies throughout AT&T, I came back and I redesigned Arkham Horror. Uh, the newer version back in the early 2000s, and in 2005 it was published with Fantasy Flight and, and came out. So that's, that's probably my grandfather game as my my Arkham Horror, and from that, kind of everything else stems. Uh, you know, I've done Elder Sign, I've done Defenders of the Realm, those are probably some of my big ones. I've done Pirates vs. Dinosaurs, which probably nobody's heard of, uh, through Jelly Rogers Games, which was really kind of a challenge, he wanted a Pirates on an island fighting dinosaurs, and he kept telling me, nobody can design a game like that. I said, I can design a game like that. Uh, maybe not a great game like that, but I can design <laughs> a game like that. And uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun with, with the right number of people. And then uh, I've done a, a number of different games since then. Uh, my, probably my latest that came out last year was uh, Run, Fight, or Die from 8th uh, Summit. And I've got uh, one right now on Kickstarter, which is Defenders of the Last Stand, which takes my Defenders uniform. Uh, universe and moves it into post-apocalyptic world. So, I try to do storytelling games. That's my main focus on games. Is that all my games create stories and create experiences. Uh, and you know, it never fails that I go to conventions. I talk to people and they talk to me about playing one of my games and they tell me a story. They always tell me a story. I remember when this happened. I remember when that happened. They're telling me stories that took place in some cases 20 years ago. Some of them go back to the original Arkham Horror and say, you know, we were playing it and here's what happened. And I remember my best friend did this and they always tell me all these stories and I can't tell you how satisfying that is to me because that's what I was trying to achieve in my designs and I don't think other games deliver that. I mean, you know, you very seldom do you go up to somebody and say, you know, you remember that time that we were playing, you know, Pandemic and you took out that one cube. I was going to go get it, but I, but, I, but I didn't get around to it, but this other guy, he took out that cube and that was great. You know, so those don't have the same stories. They're fun to play, they're entertaining, they're, they're enjoyable. But I don't think they leave you with those stories. I think there's a real niche market where a lot of people really enjoy the story aspect, you know, uh, of the games. So what I find is, you know, the people that really get it, really get it. Some people don't care for it, and that's great because we have a broad range of games. More than ever out there, I think it's almost close to 1,000 games a year published now. It keeps it's, it's jumping at leaps and bounds. So uh, I think that's great for the industry, and it appears that there seems to be a market for all of them. So that gives you a little bit of my history of, 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 of what I've done up till now. Um, I'm really open to questions. I know some of you came with specific questions, probably, but I'll be glad to answer them. Uh, why did
1: you uh, start with our
0: Well, actually, you know, it's based on H.P. Lovecraft, so it's, it's his universe, which is an entire horror universe, and there's a whole mythology around it, so you know, a lot of people look at Tolkien and see him as kind of the the, uh, uh, the person who's established modern fantasy for us. If you really look at modern horror, it, it's H.P. Lovecraft. Okay, uh, I, I, You can go back in time, literary, they would say, you know, it, it's Edgar Allan Poe. But now I think they've even come to the, the, the conclusion that you know all of Hollywood, all mod, most modern books are, are really crafted after what Lovecraft you know put down. So it's based on his world. So I just try to bring his world to the board game. Yes.
2: Um, one of the reasons I think my friends and I play Arkham Horror so much is because it's cooperative, and I think, and also we can have like six people playing. It, so mm-hmm. when We all get together. Like so many board games are like two-player competitive, um, and since it seems like you 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 chose that because that was based on Call of Cthulhu, like the RPG experience, um, was that. I haven't seen many board games that do that sort of thing. I mean, now more, but like
0: I like think a- at the original time, I, I, I'm, I you know, I don't know for a fact, but I, that Arkham Horror may have been the first what we call a hobby game that was was cooperative based uh, in terms of board games. I can't think of one before that time yeah, that, that that was that. I do like cooperative games quite a bit. I have concentrated on cooperative games you know. since then, uh, Defenders of the Realms cooperative. Uh, even Run, Fight, or Die, my, my kind of first player shooter zombie game, while it, it has a competitive aspect, there's also uh, a lot of times I'll do a, com- a, a co-op version as well, so it's got a co-op component expansion that can be bought so we can play that way. I think a lot of people really enjoy playing co-op. There are a lot of people that do not like playing co-op, okay? There has to be a winner. I I hear from them at almost every convention I go to, why would you do a game where there's not a winner? Well, because everybody's a winner or everybody's a loser and it creates a different, creates a whole different, and I call them experience, gaming experiences. I like competitive games too, but they're different experiences than a cooperative game, especially if it's a good cooperative game. And then there's a group that always wants a trader in the game, okay? There's got to be a trader. If we're going to have a co-op, there's got to be a trader. Sometimes a trader works in games, sometimes it doesn't. I'm, I'm very mixed on traders. Uh, I know on uh, Defenders of Last Stand I'm going to do scenarios and I'm going to provide one scenario where you know one or more players might be loyal to the different invading tribes because I think in the post-apocalyptic world that could very well happen. Uh, but the, the base game itself will still be predominantly, you know, depending. I think I'm putting four scenarios in. Three of the scenarios will be pure co op, with one that'll have a potential to have, have a trader. But I'm not a huge fan of, of, of the trader games uh, simply because the trader's are either very, very good. And stays hidden and makes it very very interesting, or the trader is very, very bad, and everybody knows who the trader is right off the bat and uh, or the game re- relies on a trader okay and I think it 's always dangerous to build a mechanic that relies on a trader okay to, to do certain things because you can 't trust that they 're going to do them as a game designer i can 't you know I like it to where it 's totally open ended so people can play the game any way they want to and in the end you know and for me, my games are more about at least I think so more about you know, what experience did you get out of it? You know, what story developed versus whether whether you win or lose? And uh, that's, that's a, a, I think, a, a unique concept to my games. When you're starting out creating a game, you've got an idea for a game. Uh, do you generally start off with the story and then you apply mechanics to it? Or do you start off, I'm going to build this type of game and then write the story and it the mechanics? I I always start with story and theme and then try to blend mechanics into the game that works, okay? Uh, I think I have some elegant mechanics at times, but nobody... I I don't think people look at my games and go, wow, you know, look at the mechanic he came up with for this. Because I'm not really trying to create new mechanics. People create create, create great mechanics out there. Mechanics cannot be... You know, you, you, you cannot uh, legally, you know, have a mechanic that can't be used in another game. Mechanics are free uh, across the board to all designers to use, so, uh, you know, you, use things you see that work and will blend in well with the theme, uh, and what you'll have is something that's, you know, highly playable for you know, for the players, I think. So. Yeah.
1: so uh can you talk a little bit uh, about the challenges and, and pitfalls of creating an extensively co-op game? Uh, I, I I would see that as very, di- for me, it would seem like very difficult to balance the game mechanics so that the players have a, a, a chance of winning. You know, and
0: and, <laughs> and well, then, you know, the interesting aspect uh, if you're doing a co-op game you have to decide how hard you want the game to be for them to win, okay? So that's the main thing you're looking at, is how hard do you want to establish it? So w- when you build that, well, first of all, you build the universe, okay? Then you build the mechanics around it. And then you begin to play test, play test, play test. For me, it's it's more of an art than a science. There's some people that do a whole lot of math up front and feel a whole lot of math and sometimes that math really comes across in the game. Okay, I played a new game that just came out from uh, uh, Cool Mini. It's a, a deck building card game. And you go, you got an enemy on, slot is, I don't know what the Zeno name of it is. What? Shift. Zeno Shift, yes. And actually I, I quite liked it, but but, but as the game goes on you go through phase one to phase two to phase three and uh... you can really feel the math okay as you go to phase two you start seeing the math become more prevalent and in phase three the math is like all there is really okay i'm putting together twelve points versus you know the the six that's being blocked here and so on and so forth and uh... i feel like the game's a good game but I think it would be a great game if you didn't feel that math so greatly. Okay, uh, so the people who are thematically get you know buying it—it's a space marine type game. I think that they really feel like they're in the theme when they're in that first phase, and the math's not really too noticeable. But as they move through the game, by the time they get to 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 that third phase, it becomes more of a game about math than a game about aliens attacking you, you know your space marines. And so I think as as a designer, you kind of have to. Bury the mechanics to where you don't feel those mechanics so much if you want a true thematic game at the end, and I, tr- I try to do that. So what happens is I, I, I approach it for more as an art than a science. I build my game. I don't worry about the math up front. Then I do extensive play testing where and, and I, do, I do closed play testing you know i don 't send it out to the masses i 'm not inter- quite frankly, i 'm not interested with in what the masses think okay? uh, I want to know what I see because I understand what my game is supposed to be I understand what my game how it 's supposed to play I understand the experience it 's supposed to deliver, so I need to see the people playing it and i 'll make changes right there on the spot as they 're playing it. Uh, to start making adjustments and, and tweak the game, and usually my games will go through, you know, uh, as many as 10, 12 renditions uh, of, of major changes before I get to a balance that I'm willing to show to, to you know, game companies. In some cases, that's not the case. Elder Sign, pretty much from the original design uh, to the final pro- prototype was like a two-week period with almost no changes in between, and that's pretty much what ultimately came out. Uh, so, uh, it, it just depends on the game and then some games never get there. I have games that I've done, you know, eight, ten different changes, shifts, and I just never get the feeling and it just goes, I have a shelf of unfit games, that just goes on that shelf of unfit games and at some point I might, oh, now I've got an idea and I'll pull it back out and and look at it and see what I can do. So. Yes? My favorite card game? Uh, Shadow Rift is my favorite card game lately, which is a a cooperative deck building game. I I think that they actually did a brilliant job with the theme on it. Back in the day, I loved Magic, you know, uh, when it it was first out and it's still, you know, one of the granddaddies and it's proven that over the years that it's just solid. Everything aspires to be that particular game, okay? But uh, uh, of lately, the the one that, I was surprised I would like it as much as I did was Shadow Rift, it's just a really well-built thematic card game.
2: So you're talking about playtesting, and you don't it. You do send it out to the public, but do you do a blind
0: playtesting? No, okay. I never do a blind playtesting. So testing.
2: you're always there with the playtesting? Okay.
0: Yes. Uh, you know, now when the companies take it, yeah, I'm sure they do blind t- playtesting at the time, but no, I, I control my games right to the point that I show them to companies, and once they take them, I provide them with the finished copy, and then they take them and do... All the refinement they're supposed to do. That's one of the things that, that the real advantages of, you know, there's a lot of stuff that where guys are devi- designing games, putting them on Kickstarter now, okay? Yeah. And they're not getting that development by companies. And so a lot of them are pretty good games, but maybe not great games, but a little development would have made them a great game. And the difference is not whether or not you end up liking the game or not, it ends up how much do you end up playing the game. Yeah. You know? And a lot of games get bought on Kickstarter because they look good. Uh, or even because they're in a theme or whatever the case is, they get played one or two times and yeah. go on the shelf. Uh, and what you want to do as a designer is have your games played, you know, year after year. I mean, well, probably what I'm most proud of is Arkham is coming up on its 10-year anniversary, uh, you know, from Fantasy Flight, and it's still one of the top five selling games at Fantasy Flight. Uh, and when I go to cons, it's being played. When I go to cons, I see Elder Sign getting played. When I go to cons, I see Defenders of the Realm getting played. Uh, You know, I see a lot of my games getting played at cons years after they've come out, and that makes you feel good if if you do this because you want other people to enjoy your games, which is one of the primary reasons I design them. So somebody else hold their hand up. Yes? Uh, A digital versions of your games, do you have any input in that? You don't have much input. uh, Quite frankly, once you give your game over to a company, you don't have much input, period. You know, all contracts from any reputable game company is going to say they have the right to make any changes they want to. Most of the time, they'll make those changes. That'll be very, very positive. You know, sometimes they'll make some changes that you may or may not want them to make. But uh, they have the rights to, to do that. So, you know, uh, they have total control. Uh, as far as that's concerned, what the contract gives to you is anything they do with that, whether it's digital or, or whatever, uh, they pay you royalties on. So... Other questions? Yes? How about changes there? Is there any elements from your original version of what we played now that you wish were still? Oh well, you know, I think any designer will tell you that uh, I prefer my version to whatever came out. If they made changes to it, you know, that's that's just natural. Of course, in my case, it's right. Uh, uh, you know, yes, I would I would say, uh, you know, for example, the original Elder Sign. How I many people have played Elder Sign before? You can buy You can buy an Elder Sign in the original Elder Sign. You, you know, we took that out out in the expansion. It was not in the original game. Okay, Fantasy Flight added that because some of the playtesters felt like that would be a really good thing, I think, to spend, you know, tokens on uh, to get. But it kind of is anticlimactic climatic when they buy that last Elder sign. Oh, I just bought the last Elder sign. We shut him out. That's not near as good as winning that by rolling dice, okay, when everybody cheers. So, uh, yeah, I would have never put that in. There's some really cool cards I had in, in Arkham Horror, like... I think there's one where if you go to the um, science, if you go into the science, Miskatonic science, and you, your, your, your spirit leaves your body and you have to start a new character, okay, it's, it basically. <laughs> but my version was not that at all. My version was your spirit leaves your body and the person sitting across from you, their spirit their leaves their body and you get up the table, go over, sit down where they are, they come over and sit down where you are, okay? I think that's much more fun. Uh, so, you know, there, there's things like that. Uh, I mentioned Pirates vs. Dinosaurs. You know, that one went Kickstarter. That was a really clean game when it was a four-player game. Uh, they wanted it to be a five-player game as a publisher, so we worked, we made it a five-player game. Then on Kickstarter they said, hey, we're going to make it a six-player game if enough people buy it. I'm like, we are. <laughs> so we made it a six-player game. But the problem is it's a, it's, it's a card-play, dice-rolling game, so every time you add a, add a, every time you add a player, you're adding significant time to the game. So you took what was, you know, a 75, you know, 60 to 75 minute game and you made it a two and a half hour game uh, that, you know, while you're waiting for other people to take their turn in a six player game can, can be miserable. And so I think sometimes the, the politics of what we want to offer to the masses, okay, we can make this a six player game, uh, may not may not work as well, okay, as, as it was in a four player game. Uh, You play that game with four players, and it still plays really, really well. You add that fifth and sixth player, and because there's combat back and forth that slows the game down, it it can really slow the game down. Uh, So you see things like that, you know, but by and large, um, most of the changes made, and even some of the graphic changes they made on that one were really positive. But uh, some of the things that they added to it, especially as Kickstarter items, kind of kind of hurt that game in the long run in terms of play experience, I think. So.
2: Um, I mean, you mentioned that kind of lack of uh, extra playtesting as a common mistake in like Kickstarter games that like, you see. Uh, what other kind of mistakes do you see other game designers doing uh, these days, especially with co-op games?
0: Well, you know, the last thing I won't be is critical of game designers because uh, I will tell you, it's, it's hard to design a game. Yeah. Most people think it's not, but it is. So I, I design, I, I divide game game designers into groups, okay? Uh, kind of group one is the hobbyist who wants to design a game and get it published, all right. And and for them, you know, it's the whole thing. I just want to get get a game out there, and they're the ones probably who need development of their games more than anybody else. But you know, look, they're happy with one run and done. So you know, I, I think God bless them. You know, they they got they got their game out there. Uh, for for you know people who do this on an ongoing basis, uh, you know yeah i mean I'm not sure there, there there are mistakes being made by that group uh, you know it depends on where they are in their career. It depends on you know if, if they've been around like me for a while and they've got games that uh, publish on an ongoing basis evergreen that they're making money on uh, then they then they can really focus on projects they want to do all right but if you're just starting out and you're trying to make a living at this, the one thing you have to know that every game every game designer the things I'm doing right now, I'm not making a dime on. The things I did last year, I'm not probably not making a dime on that either. I've got to go back three years for what I'm getting paid for today because the length of time to publish a game, once you actually sell it to the game company, so, so forget the whatever time you spent, you know, two, three, six months designing it, uh, it's, it's 18 to 24 to 36 months before they put that game out. All right, so for you to start getting your royalty payments, it's 6 months after that. All right. So that's a long timeline. So if you're trying to do this as a living and you don't have a savings to live off of or whatever, you start doing a lot of little design work where that you get paid like $2,000 advance pay or whatever else. You start doing these small projects people want you to do. And I think, you know, I think that is both beneficial because it pays you and I think it's also a minus because you're just taking a lot of little projects that you may not be able to spend all the time on to do the, the, the big game that you need to do. And so the odds of your games going evergreen become, become less. Uh, I was fortunate that you know I was working for AT&T so I was designing games on the side. I didn't have to make a living off of them during, during that time. But if you're out there trying to start out now, I, I think that's the toughest thing for you. And I think that leads, and my point is, I think that leads to maybe some games that you took some shortcuts shortcuts on or whatever just to get it done in the timeline to get it off to this company. And it's good enough to publish, but probably not good enough to, to be a great game that stays on people's shelves, so. Other questions?
1: Was your, um, when did you first decide that you were going to start designing games and then I guess you were doing it for fun and then when did you decide that you were actually going to try and sell it
0: more? Okay, uh, actually I, I've always loved games back from when I was young. I remember designing games from, you know, just games from me and my friends when I was a teenager in high school, okay? And in college, uh, we had a, a uh, winter course that you could take and you could design your own. So I designed a game design course, when I think when I was a junior, just, you know, just did that. Uh, when I got out of school, I even, Hallmark at that time was producing some games and we were in the Kansas City area, around the Kansas City area, I went and talked to them. Uh, about trying to get into that and that didn't happen so I went into Yellow Pages because I, I had an art background and then I moved through management in the Yellow Pages line of business and, and marketing line of business. So I designed games, I continued to fool with designing games so, uh, so back in the early 80's is when I really started writing and sending off and getting published some, some role playing stuff and then actually then, then, then doing Arkham Horror so it's, it's kind of always been there uh, and, and I've, you know, you, can, you continue to refine it over the years. You learn more. You refine it more. Uh, it, it takes, you know, it takes a lot of work and concentration, uh, really, when you boil it all down, and creativity to, to really design, design a game. And uh, I've designed some really bad games that are in my closet. Uh, they were great ideas. They just never worked out. Uh, and then you can get like an idea from, you know, I've woken up uh, and have dreamed ideas and say, you know, I think that'll make a good game, and gone down and designed a game like in a week and, and had somebody publish it. So uh, it, it can go all over the place. And then you can concentrate and work on it and spend months and months and months and never be able to get a game, the game to where you want it to be. So. What was the uh, impetus for revisiting Arkham Horror? Uh the you know, the original game did very well. Uh it, there was a French version, there was a Japanese great the original game sold great in Japan. Monsters marching around the board, man, they loved <laughs> that game over there. They sold they, they sold more copies there than any place else. Uh the French version was beautiful. They did great new artwork. They didn't use the artwork from uh from calcium, which in calcium is predominantly a role playing company, so you know, uh they they did a good job with the game, but uh, you know, they, not in terms of how we do board games today. No mounted board, just a, you know, a thick cardboard mat and so on and so forth. But um, years had passed, uh, the game had still been popular, and I just came up with the idea, you know, it's time to revise it. And I, retur- I actually entitled mine Return to Arkham, I didn't really call it Arkham Horror again. And uh, I redesigned it, and I took it to Origins and just playing it for fun. You used to be able to play in the breezeway there between the hotel and the convention hall area. And uh, we were playing it and uh, somebody came in and said, hey, I'd like to play. So I'd never met him before. It was Kevin Wilson who ended up being uh, co-designer of the, the final because he was with Fantasy Flight. And uh, he sat down, played it for a while. he was having a good time. He had to go because he, he was he was doing something there and I think Christian Peterson contacted me about uh, about a month and a half later, saying, "You know we really want to publish this game again so um, so, so that 's what brought me back to it. I just felt like there were some things I could update on it. I mean mechanics had changed. you know the mechanics of roll and move in the '80s have been replaced with more sophisticated mechanics of of skills and so on and so forth so uh, so you know I was kind of Putting those things into the game, which didn't exist back when in, when, I, when I originally designed it, so uh, people always say to me, you know, I'd like to buy that original game. I say, yeah, it's a, it's a great game, it's a fun game to play, but it's not in the ballpark mechanic wise with with what we have now. So, yes. Did
2: you uh, could you talk about like the expansions? For I mean, Arkham Horror has so many expansions, and a lot of them really changed the game. Did you? have an active hand in those or did you, I mean, because the original didn't have expansions, right?
0: The original actually did have an expansion that never came out. Uh, The Dunwich expansion never came out. Uh, So, uh, you know, some people have found art from it because I had submitted one to Chaosium. I had worked on another guy with a guy named Keith Herbert. We'd we'd been working on, you know, putting the the Dunwich expansion together, but it never got published. I never, you know, people always say, "Do you approach a game with the idea of doing expansions?" The idea is no, but but I create games that are open-ended, so there's always the opportunity to do sp- expansion. There's a difference between the two. Um, I did I did work on many of the expansions. <clears throat> In fact, uh, as soon as the game had come out, I'd already had ideas. Well, I'd already had ideas for a lot of different pieces, like the um, um, uh, injury and 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 mania cards, as opposed to to what we had. I'd already done. I did a board that had Dunwich and and Innsmouth on it. Okay, it was actually one board that had them together, and I I sent it off to Fantasy Flight and. You know, they decided to do Dunwich, and uh, they told me then, look, whenever we release Innsmouth, it'll be the last one, so we're not going to put it out for a long time. I didn't work on a lot of the, the small expansions, uh, but, but the boxed expansions, I, I, I worked on most of them. Kevin mostly did uh, uh, Kingsport. Uh, it had some stuff for me, but he mostly did Kingsport. Uh, uh, I had... I did some of the, the Dunwich stuff. Uh, I did some of the Enzima stuff. So uh, they have a great team there with lots of people who can focus on it. Uh, so I feel very fortunate to to be involved with Fantasy Flight. They've been they've been a great company to work with. Fantastic people, uh, very professional. Great marketing staff. Uh, I'm and all my interaction with them has always been very positive.
1: In your in your processes of designing board games and everything, are there uh, certain board games that influence like you know older board games or board games that kind of influenced your design at all,
0: like the games that you played? I'm I'm sure there I'm sure there are. I'm
1: just wondering if anything just kind of pops. up.
0: You know, when I look back at the games I played as a kid. there's only one game that I really remember, and I don't think I've done anything like it, and that was the Dark Shadows board game. I remember getting the Dark Shadows board game when I was like 12 or whatever, and you had to move through the whole Dark Shadows by playing these cards that moved you to different icons and stuff. I thought it was the greatest game in the world. I did back then. I don't now, but I thought it was the greatest game in the world back then. So maybe that one influenced me. I don't know. Um, you know, I. I I think I was more influenced by what was done, being done with role playing uh, than what was done with board games. I mean, board games, especially if you look at, what, you know, back in the seventies, seventies and eighties, uh, early eighties. I mean, literally back then, if Avalon Hill was probably the biggest hobby industry um, publisher at the time, they published five games a year. That was it, five games. Uh, four of them were going to be war games and one of them would be non-war game, okay, usually Alan Moon would, would influence that one. Uh, in, in other companies, there wasn't a, a lot of, you know, you had strategy and tactics, you had different ones, They would, almost all of them were war, ga- war games, very very few of anything in between. So uh, I think we, we've definitely come a long, long ways from them. Uh, but uh, uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure I've been influenced by a number of different things, but uh, probably more from role-playing than board games uh, yeah, based on my past.
2: Uh, um, well, speaking of role-playing, uh, you know, there's a new edition of Call of Cthulhu out. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about
0: going back into designing role-playing games and everything? No, I mean, yeah, I, I'm happy with my with, with my part of the market. Uh, actually, I, I, you know, the, the role-playing is it's fun. It's fun to write stories and stuff like that. But I get to do the same thing. I mean, I write, uh, for example, finish the Last Stand. I mean, I, I've created this whole universe, futuristic, part Mad Max, part Gamma World, part you know, uh, just wild, wild west. Because I made everybody rangers, like Texas Rangers, protecting this city. Uh, so so I do get to do my creative writing piece on that kind of stuff uh, and and i'm I'm happy with that and people can sit down and, and get into that much easier than they can get into role-playing uh, so so I'm I'm that that's where i'm I'm going to stay is, is constantly trying to you know pick a, an area that I can do stories on and put those stories into a board game
1: think,
0: oh go ahead
2: are there any kind of stories that you want to tell through a game that you haven't had a chance to?
0: I want to do superheroes next. Um, you know, i probably create my own line. The um, company I'm talking with is trying to get, you know, Marvel rights. But, I you know, I, I really believe there needs to be a good adventure superhero game. We've got superhero combat games, you know, we've got superhero card games, but we don't have a superhero board game that really flushes out the characters and lets them do a lot of different stuff. Uh, I'd, I'd like to do something like that. I could like do space pirates. I mean, I could pick a whole bunch of things I'll, I, you know, I'd like to do. It. Uh, so, so there, I think there's lots of opportunity, uh, you know, pick something and create your universe around it. You know, and one of the things I feel really good about is anytime I'm talking with Fantasy Flight or Christian Peterson, uh, you know, they, they have a, or any of the folks there, you know, they have the Ark, Arkham Horror Bible essentially that says everything we do that's based off the Arkham Horror universe, it follows this, the characters have to act the same in Eldritch Horror. Uh, Elder Sign, uh, Mansions of Madness or or anything else we do, the characters have to you know, still be the same. Everything has to come back to that that Arkham Horror, you know, Bible that was created. Uh, so everything stems from that. That's the granddaddy of, of all the other games, and, and I'm 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 very happy they do that, and 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 very uh, proud of the fact that you know we've created this universe, and you know, thanks to H.P. Lovecraft and you know everybody else. It's kind of a cross between H.P. Lovecraft and you know pulp. It's it's and pulp. Fiction because you know, you could never really. People sometimes tell me, ah, oh, you could never be Cthulhu. No, but what kind of game would that be? Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. it's not really true to to H.P. Lovecraft. Well, yeah, yeah. Because the only way to do that would be have everybody roll a die. One through four, you're insane. Five or six, you're dead. Okay, that's it. Game over. Uh, you know, we, we actually want you to, to, to be in a world that's uh, exciting. So, you know, we, get, we bring a lot of that pulp fiction adventure into it. Uh, and, I, and I think it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice twist to it. And that's really a move away from even, you know, the, the Call of Cthulhu card game. So, so
1: tying into uh, kind of the superheroes thing, Are there any projects that you're working
0: on currently that you feel comfortable talking about? Uh, Yeah, shoot, everybody knows I'll talk about anything. you know, I've got I've got a number of games in the works. Of course, Defenders of the Last Stand has taken the the majority of my time up till now, but it's about to come to conclusion. I'm still in the balancing, play testing, fooling around with a few scenarios because scenario development you can always keep doing. Okay, let's do a new scenario. Let's do a new scenario. Let's do a new. You got when you do a scenario, you've got to play the game like 50 times of that scenario to see you know how it works. Uh, so you you end up dealing with all that type of stuff. I've got a, a light time travel game coming up. where your time agents, uh, you know, and it kind of, uh, uh, it's a 30 minute light card game actually with tiles and it's very reminiscent when you set it up, so it looks a lot like, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, what's the, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Island or Forbidden Desert. Uh, But it's a co-op game, and and you've got an alien race trying to destroy our timeline. So I think that one's going to do very well. I've got uh, an adventure card game. I've tried to do a few light things lately where everybody plays various gods influencing adventurers, and you're playing cards on top of each other. Everybody's playing the same characters, but you're putting cards on top of them. So when a dungeon room is taken, whoever's cards are on top get the most experience. So you're influencing the, the heroes who are in it. Uh, that one will probably be uh, coming out uh, early next year. I think the, the, the time one will be coming out probably early next year. And I'm working on another big fantasy quest game. Um, it's going to have a lot of role-playing aspect to it, uh, you know, called Quest of the Realm. Uh, that, that should be coming out probably next year. And right now I'm working with a couple of other designers I met at Unpub. Uh, doing, taking a small piece of the universe from uh, Defenders of the Realm, Brookdale Village, and making it to where you are just the local people. The militia has been pulled out and all of a sudden your town gets attacked by a small war band. So, you happen to be, you know, the the tavern barmaid, the the local drunk, the stable boy, and you have to try to defend the town, you know, as best you can till the heroes show up. So, uh, so that one that one's looking well too. And then I've got uh, two or three games, you know, penciled out that uh, uh, that I'm that are in the early stages. Those are in the later stages. So I usually have about three to five games that I'm working on at a time. They're either done and ready ready to be presented and sold. Or they're in the later stages; and they're just doing play testing, or they're in the what I call mid-design stages, which means the mechanics are down. Um, you know, some of the stuff's been created, may have even done the early an early alpha testing, making some changes to it, and then I still have things that are I penciled out and on, you know, ready to go. So, go
2: make your play testing. Uh, Sometimes when I'm playtesting a game, uh, players will do something I never expected, so I have to revise based on that. Have there been any sort of experience of where you were sure that because of this mechanic the players are going to behave like X, but they do like a 180,
0: and so you have to like rethink something? The, The nice thing about the way I design games is they can do whatever they want, and it really seldom affects the games. The biggest thing that comes out of it is that they, get a conf- they, they can create a confusing rule or something because of the way I use terminology or something. So my FAQs are usually longer than some people. I keep trying to work on that, but, you know, what seems very clear to you, okay, uh, may not seem clear to them. And I, by the way, writing rules is the worst part of any game design. <laughs> I'm just telling you right now, no matter how well you write them, Somebody else wants it you know, more detailed, so I run rules past a lot of people now and, and get a lot of feedback on those toward the end, uh, but uh, actually very seldom do, do I run in a situation where people do, you know, the, the nice thing about my designs are they are truly open-ended designs that let people do whatever they want to. You know, a lot of designs say that, okay, I'll take Agricola, which is a Euro game. Oh, you can do anything you want to in that game. You can, you can, you can put cows out here. or You can build fences, or you can build onto your house, or you can expand your family, or you can do this or that or the other. Of course, at the end of the game, oh, did you build fences? I'm sorry, you're losing points if you didn't. Uh, did you put cows out there? Oh, I'm sorry, you're losing points. So in the end, you'd have to do everything. Everybody has to do the same thing. They just get to do it at different times. And that's not the same as saying you could do whatever you want to, and you could just be this big rancher and not concentrate on, you know, planting crops at all. And I try to do games that come out to where you can do whatever you want. Okay, that that you know the consequences of that may be that all of you lose the game, but you can do anything you want to. Uh, you know, I try to make it to where. There's not one solution. And I feel very good about that. I know when I first put out uh, Defenders of the Realm, which borrows some mechanics from, from Pandemic, okay, but it has a lot of other mechanics mixed in. And, uh, I mean, when it first came out, there was some, some pretty heavy gamers that are part of the Buckeye, uh, Buckeye Game Club that came and sat down and played it. I didn't know it, but one of the guys with the the Eagle Games knew him, and they played for like 15 minutes. They got up and left, so he was like concerned that, oh, they, they must hate this game or whatever. But he went and talked to one of the guys, and they told him, no, no, we, we love the game, but we usually play Pandemic. You know, and one of the guys knows all the moves you need to make in pandemic. And he couldn't figure out what the moves were here. So we decided to go do something else right now. So, you know, that's good because I tell people that Defenders of the Realm gives you lots of choices. There is no... You know, you can't just go do... It's not obvious what you need to do every turn. So nobody can really take that role of saying, go do this and go do this and go do this. You know, in Arkham Horror is the same thing. Yeah, there's lots of things you can do, but is it more important to collect that clue or is it more important to jump through that gate? Well, nobody really knows the answer to that question, okay? (coughs) It's only when you do it that it makes a difference. And that's how I like to create games where, yeah... But most of the time, you can see how the game... I can look back and see games that I lose... Where we made the wrong decisions, and and I think that means it's much more than just luck, okay? In in the process, so. Yes.
2: Uh, speaking of luck, um, you know, there's the two uh, major schools of like American versus Euro board game design. Like Euros, like Settlers of Catan, very very minimal randomization. Where
0: American games actually, I would argue that it's got just as much randomization, okay. but it has implied. Yeah. It implies it does not have Ramination. I'm drawing a card. I'm right. rolling a dice to move the robber around. You know, I I think there's there's the well, I mean, idea of the two philosophies, right? You know, trying to minimize it or like throw more dice. In.
2: Like what? I mean, what are your feelings on that?
0: I mean, oh, I I lean heavily toward the randomness. Okay, right. because randomness tells new stories and greater stories. You know, okay. For example, and I think there's been you know some seminars on this. Okay, chess is at this end. No luck based. You know, you make the moves. Your opponent makes the moves. Whatever you do is, is going to drive the results. The problem is, let's say you are a significantly better chess player than I am. You will beat me every time. Right. So next week we're not playing anymore. In fact, I loved chess until I got into junior high and joined the chess club, and I got started losing in like five moves. I'm like, okay, I'm done with chess. <laughs> okay. Chess was fun right up to that point. It's not fun anymore. These people are smarter than me. I need dice. Uh, so... My viewpoint is, you know, you need to have controlled luck. So I provide controlled luck. I provide them with cards that let them reroll dice, weapons that power up things, this, that, and the other. So yeah, we can charge into battle with that dragon coming toward Monarch City. But we don't. We have, and we can do the math. We got to roll fives and sixes, and we got to hit him five times, and we've got twelve dice. Odds are against us, okay? But I've got a reroll in my hand, and you've got this. Odds are in our favor. So, so I I try to put that in there. But it's actually that. It's actually that difference. It's that Arkham horror where we. I've had one guy tell me one time, man. I had seventeen dice, and all I had to do was successfully catch this. uh, zebra and I come back through a gate and shut the last gate and win the game and I rolled 17 dice and I couldn't roll any successes and we lost on the next turn and, and that's a story a guy was telling me that he played a game 12 years ago okay
1: yeah.
0: and that lasted with him you know had that been a chess game yeah I moved it over there we took it that's that uh, we, we don't talk about it anymore you know so I think it, I think there's beauty in randomness as long as it's just not wild randomness. And make sure the randomness doesn't punish people. I was looking at one game uh, somebody brought, and everybody's kind of excited to play it. And we were moving, and the turns, each, each time you took a round of turns, it was like 10 minutes for every player to take it, which was fine, because we don't mind long games. But one guy, like three turns in, he fell off in this pit and had to roll two dice to see how many turns he missed. He rolled 12, so he's gonna miss 12 turns. So he went to lunch. Okay? <laughs> you don't want that. All right? That's, that's you know, kind of my number one. My, I have two. Well, I have a number of primary rules of game design, but one of the, them is it sucks to do nothing on your turn. Never create a situation where the player does nothing on their turn because they're going to get bored really, really quick. Okay? So, so you, you have to. And the other one, second one is no player elimination. No fun sitting there watching your friends play a game. Okay, so I can run, fight, or die. When one player dies, game ends. Okay, everybody who's not dead scores their points. If you're dead, you lose. You know, but everybody else gets to score their points. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, the random aspect of a game can be really, really good if you give them the ability to control it. Okay, I don't think it should just be... Okay, it doesn't matter. I'll roll a die. If I got a six, win the game. Okay, Elder Sign, some people, I've actually read reviews where people said, so do you think there's luck involved? Well, you're rolling seven dice, okay, eight dice sometimes, you know. Yeah, there's, there's luck involved, okay. But you also have a bunch of things that help you control that luck. And sometimes, once again, failing at one of those dramatically is just as much fun as succeeding, you know, easily. So... Any questions? Anybody over here? Yes. Um,
1: was it Eagle Griffith or you that went with the plastic minis for uh, Defenders of the Last Stand? Does that have anything to do with the common trend that
0: we have now towards minis games being more of a hot seller? Okay, well, uh, yeah. You know, first of all, uh, it's it's not Eagle Games on that. Eagle Games does Defenders of the Realm, uh, so it's uh, that's going to be Eighth Summit. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, what he wanted to do was he wanted to he wanted to provide all unique minis to make that game great because he loves this whole post-apocalyptic Mad Max world. And you know, pricing the game, the base game, if you don't get the custom dice, at sixty some dollars. Uh, that game with all those minis from anybody else would be over a hundred dollars. So, uh, so I think what, his, what he did was make the pricing the same that it would have been if these guys were you know, not custom minis, uh, you know, and, and, and try to pass that on. Uh, the campaign's done okay. It's not done as good as he would hoped because he was hoping the campaign would get you know up close to at least two hundred thousand because those molds are really expensive. But that's fine. He's going no matter what he's gonna print the game. Uh, may not ever get reprinted, but he's gonna print that game and uh, you know and, and provide it out there, and it's 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 gonna be a great value to the people to the people that pick it up. But I think the trend is this. You know, uh, you can do a number of different things. But I think in a game like that, to have standard, the same mini for every race doesn't work like it did with the fantasy one. Uh, for, first of all. To have tokens uh, is not near as good looking. Well, I
1: was just thinking, you know, Dead of Winter doing so well with just the, uh, you know, the little
0: Totally different game. Well, I understand. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the Dead of Winter, you, the miniatures don't really drive any of the gameplay. Okay, I, I, quite frankly they could have gone with just stand-up tokens, I mean they could have gone with tokens right, that laid right. flat because all theirs are doing are setting on locations, right. uh, there's limited combat with them, uh, so, so they're, they're just kind of setting there, so that's kind of a different game. I think you can do stand ups but not for a game where there's going to be thirty stand ups of each race okay? okay I think I think that gets into trouble even in that game you can't tell often you can't tell the zombie from the uh, from the characters right. I mean you got to look close especially when you're trying to pull them out so um, I, I think it has pros it has pros and cons but uh, you know me I would not do standees on a game like Defenders of the Last Stand or Defenders of the Realm. I w- I would just do cubes if I wasn't going to do you know if I wasn't going to do miniatures. Something that you can look and see a three-dimensional color, it has to be in that color uh, and I think that that works much better. Other oh, miniatures always look great. They're very expensive. I'm amazed that he's willing to you know do custom minis for all the different different races, but it's only because he loves the theme and wants that game to to be really good. And that's for him, that's kind of a labor of love. Right. So, more for him than for the everybody else, I'd say. Right.
1: Any other questions from the audience?
2: Uh, Sorry. Uh, any other primary uh, rules for game design. Uh,
0: yeah, popcorn. Popcorn's huge. You guys know what I mean when I say popcorn? Everybody loves to get fed popcorn. Feed them popcorn all the time. I mean, you do something, you get this. You do something, you get this. You do something, you get this. And uh, um, I, I think it's... I, I think that's a good game design mechanic. Um, you know, I, Once again, I think uh, if you're going to be character-based, then be really character-based. Uh, skills... Uh, should be specific to that character and not blend over to other characters so that each character kind of stands alone. Uh, I do story based things. I'm not in favor of what some companies do where like I get a male and female version of the character. I flip it over and it's female. I flip it over here. It's exactly the same. No, I do female characters and do them just as strong as the male characters and you pick a character and they've got a true history, okay? Not I can just flip it over and have it either way. That you know, people like to play. I mean, I've heard from people they like to play. You know, I I like to play with females or I like to play with males, and they want to do both. Well, it, it's fine. I know the game Castaway is like that. It's got eight people stranded on an island, you know, one of the guys is like really strong and muscular and you flip it over and you got a really strong, muscular girl. I, you know, it, to me, that just doesn't work. The odds don't match up, I don't think. So I don't do that. I just create characters and make them strong. And I think of every one of them as having a history. I kind of approach it as if writing a story. This is the history of this person. This history. We don't always write all that stuff out, but I think it comes across in gameplay. So that's, that, those are kind of my key approach things. But to be true to the story, You know, make sure that the story is what they feel. You know, if you put a timer in a game, don't make the timer totally obvious, okay? Um, You know, what was it? Uh, Middle Earth Quest. You ever play Middle Earth Quest? Great game. You got a you got a thing up here that moves every turn. Okay, I told Corey. I said, Corey, I love the game. I hate seeing the timer move down the path. I mean, I understand it's part it's part of what you're dealing with, uh, but I love the game. There's it's it's just uh, there's some fantastic design elements inside that game, but. uh, I don't like watching that time move. I try to bury mechanics when I can. You, know, you can't always do it, but you, know, you don't really need people to see, to see the mechanics okay, of, of the game. You actually kind of don't want them to see the mechanics of the game. Uh, I watch a lot of young publishers present games at times at these conventions now where they're designing something, and they always start out the same way. Well, I've taken this mechanic, okay? and, I, and I always tell them, don't tell anybody what mechanics are in your game. Tell them about your game. You know, if they if they're in the industry, they're going to figure out. Oh, that's a worker placement mechanic. You don't have to tell that to them. Tell them you built this game and it's a time travel game where you go back and you know fight dinosaurs, whatever. You know, tell them the story that way. But uh, don't make it about the mechanic. Make it about the game. Uh, and 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 I think you will do a better job. So tell them I think you do a better job pres- presenting it to publishers because trust me, they've been in the industry a long time. They'll see the mechanic. You don't have to point it out to them. Even if you hide it, they'll see the mechanics. So, Other questions? All right. Thank you all. Hopefully I've entertained or informed one or the other. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks.